You are listening to the Worlding Podcast, where we explore the relationship of how we are both shaping and being shaped by our surroundings. The podcast traces interconnections by inviting each episode's guest to pass on the mic to someone who has influenced their world. And now, here's your host, dance artist Renee Schadler. Welcome to the first ever episode of Worlding. I'm Renee Schadler, a choreographer, dancer and environmental researcher based in Berlin, and I'm excited to be guiding you through a new podcast, which is a creative exploration of what Worlding could be. Today I'm talking with my first guest, Dr. Susanna Schmidt, who works across ethnographic and artistic practices, often with a multi-species lens and through work situated at the National History Museum or the Botanical Gardens or even aquariums. Thanks so much for chatting with us, Susanna. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me, Renee. Today we're diving into your research of more than human museums as another form of worlding. Can you share to begin how your world looks at the moment, perhaps what's taking your attention as you make this recording with me now? So right now I am in the library, actually, a world of its own. And I am surrounded by a lot of old books, books that are bound in leather, actually. And I am also surrounded by a lot of apples, about, I don't know, 50 apples lying around here and surrounding me. And that is because I am working on a project that I am doing together with two collaborators, Kat Petroschkat, who is also an artist and uh, a researcher and illustrator, uh, Raquel uh, Rodriguez. And we are preparing an intervention for the Urban Tree Festival in London. And we are going to invite people to do picnics with and for apple trees. And that's why I'm surrounded here by a lot of apples and actually a very lovely mix and of smells around me. And I also have a small proposition for our listeners to arrive here in our little world, our bubble that we created, our life world for the moment, for the time that we share here together. And I would just ask that for a moment we extend our hand or any other limb uh, and just touch an object, a thing that's close, and bring that towards us and bring it really close to our nose and just smell it. And by smelling, of course, we are breathing, breathing in really deep. So we're also taking in not just the smell of, well, in my case, it's book. It's a really sad book about a dog and Christmas. Um, but we're also taking in, of course, the object, the whole room, all the particles that are in the air. And by that, a lot of uh, the whole materiality and material of the world around us, the situation, um, comes into our bodies. Mm, that's a beautiful proposition. I actually have a hand cream with me and I'm smelling the outside of the hand cream, so the plastic. And it's very interesting actually how my knowledge of what's inside the tube informs my smell. I want to explain the smell like a form of luxury and care, which I find 
actually very interesting at this current moment in the pandemic when we wash our hands so much and that this cream provides moisture for my skin. So there is this really kind of nuanced interchange, I would say, between the story and the object itself. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's definitely a time for self-care and also a time to think about care even more intensely than we should be doing anyways. And um, yeah, I really like how becoming conscientious of that, becoming aware of that is really mediated by a thing that you draw close to you. Um, yeah, and at the same time, you're talking about it, narrating it, um, story about the hand cream, the way that it feels, the fact that it's also surrounded and made by plastic, um, all comes together and, yeah, really an encounter that you just had. And I think since this is a podcast about whirling, this is actually the kind of understanding um, about whirling that we find in a lot of theoretical thinking um, that we can read and uh, um, yeah, become aware of at the moment. That whirling uh, is shaped by uh, encounters, really, where storytelling and histories and material properties come together. Mm, absolutely. I actually came to the term of welding in 2015 when I was on an artistic residency in Iceland and I went there actually quite overwhelmed. Um, beforehand I was making a lot of work and I was very interested in the subconscious interactions between strangers in public spaces. But actually I got to the point where I made so much work, I was feeling a little bit burnt out. So I went to Iceland to remove myself from the world. And it was through this residency and spending one month in partnership, companionship with the Schneifnus Jokul, which is an active volcano that was actually in the backyard of where I was staying. It had a glacier on top, which for me was absolutely mind-blowing that you could have this very molten, active lava covered by this solid rock, covered by this ice that never actually melted. Like there is this slow process of some parts of the glacier melting, but throughout history, um, recent history that is, this glacier has not completely melted. And on top of that, you had this snow, which had a very, um, yeah, shifting <laughs> lifespan, if you like. It was, it was lasting perhaps a few days or weeks, depending on the depth of where it was situated. So it was through this process of connecting with these organic time spans and the time spans of the more than human I was living alongside that I began to world, as I call it, by connecting with these timescales and really finding myself in the present. Hmm. Yeah, that's so uh, evocative. And uh, yeah, I can, can see how you think about rolling as something that really is a process, as a verb, right? Something that unfolds uh, over time. 
I come to whirling um, from quite a different perspective, actually, or originally, that is, at least. Um, I come to whirling from the perspective of people, humans, who build and create worlds and know that they do so. For example, I've been working with people who... Um, curate exhibitions and people who design large um, aquariums. So people who very consciously create and design atmospheres and uh, sites and uh, places, places to be and uh, who come from a, diff from a variety of, of practices, be it architecture, be it animal husbandry, um, be it, um, well, curating in, in museums. So people who always know that when they go about their daily work, they are creating a world for others, species of all kind, of course, to experience, and um, who have an active agenda of doing so. Then, of course, what happens at these worlds become appropriated in all kinds of ways. And, of course, it then becomes very open and messy and, and uh, emergent again. And um, when we take a step back and um, think about what do we actually mean when we say worlds, um, for me, that's always quite helpful to look at things etymologically, not because I think that they still have the same meaning that they once had, but, but because it can open up, yeah, just a nice maybe historical channel for thinking about that. So um, when you uh, look it up and you look into the history of uh, the word world, which is an well, <laughs> Anglo-Germanic term, of course, that uh, we, uh, we are using here it's uh, very much um, a term that depicts a site where humans are actually present and shape the world and that wasn't really quite clear to me that historically it's so much a a term that's used for for human beings um yeah quite exclusively but then in many ways it uh it makes sense it kind of takes us back to biblical narration of the paradise you know where um one being creates a world <laughs> um where uh according to that story um the first two human beings um become <laughs> to go back to Harabay or to quote her a little bit become unworldly or become worldly by actually being interested in an apple as Eve did. And so the whole contours of their world, their paradise, which is a garden, um, which is contained and constrained by walls, becomes shaken and falls apart. So in order to go out into the world, inhabit it, world it, <laughs> become worldly in it, um, they have to leave the one which is created by a <laughs> designer <laughs> um, they are disobedient to and uh, yeah, step out of the door. Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? How things over time progress from 
I create the world. I see things, I draw them into my attention to, I try and inverse that perhaps and imagine um, something out of myself, a stepping back, a letting things in. I know Erin Manning, a philosopher and cultural theorist based in Montreal, is also working a lot with this idea of worlding. Mm -hmm. And um, we've spent some time researching together. And Manning is definitely thinking about it as a relational practice. So worlding with something, the more than that perhaps doesn't even need the human. It's just the more than and you can fill in the blanks, which I find very Mm -hmm. provocative actually. But at the same time, I absolutely hear what you're saying. There is a human agent in that story and that human Mm -hmm. agent is myself using words Mm -hmm. on a podcast to articulate it. So I think that paradigm is really interesting. It's a knot. It's something to unravel, which is exciting in lots of ways. Absolutely. And I think what's interesting here is that, yeah, absolutely, according to Erin Manning and also to Donna Haraway, uh, worlding is a relational practice. It's a becoming. It's uh, something that, you know, happens out of (laughs) doing things through movement and words and and so on and so on. And I think there's this interesting uh, friction between a world as something that is contained and constrained, you know, something that you can draw on a map, something that you can draw a circle around or a square like a garden uh, or a library (laughs) uh, or a museum. And um, then that movement where suddenly those walls um, become, yeah, breathable and uh, more porous and actually through worlding differently, you can leave those institutions behind maybe Mm, becoming with thinking with absolutely I wanted to dive into your work in museums Susanna because I find it such a nuanced practice the way you're working with the audio guide in particular could you talk us through what that practice is for you and how you go about creating spaces that perhaps allow in or sensitize listeners to the more than dot, 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 perhaps Mm -hmm. human. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So my work with museums um, always uh, happens in in collaboration. Um, The work that we are talking about now has happened uh, in collaboration with dancer and choreographer Laurie Young. And um, I think what attracted the two of us to the museum world because we talk about a museum world the same way that we talk about the art world and the fashion world, and that it itself is already quite telling. Um, I think it's the fact that they are so crowded, so densely inhabited by ghosts and uh, stories, and uh, they all want to crawl to the forefront, and uh, yet the space you enter when you buy a ticket it's very much made for humans and usually for humans who uh, have a large amount of privilege even if museums are often working hard to change that and I really want to acknowledge that effort Um, but still there are sites and spaces for a certain clientele 
and yet they can be worlded otherwise. And the way in which we try to do that is that we use a staple at museums, the audio guide. You can get that at the front desk, at the cashier in many museums. And then that audio guide will lead you through the museum, narrating its world to you and world it to you uh, through a certain kind of language, a certain kind of story. And uh, we really um, wanted to take that proposition seriously. And as an anthropologist, I have to say that I always like to use and work with things that are already deeply ingrained in the everyday life of people, you know, really use something that is already meaningful for people and uh, then shift it, shift it in a way that an opening can be created and uh, you can look at what surrounds you and smell at what surrounds you and dream about what surrounds you differently. So that is very much reminding me of what Anat Singh calls the arts of noticing. And uh, as artists, uh, creative particulars and well, animals that we are, our first and foremost instrument of research really is our bodily perception. And I think we very often uh, forget that. So in our audio walks, um, we um, try to address the fact that at the museum, we are moving along a string of encounters as bodily beings, you know, and even if the space around us seems to be untouched, we still modulate it as we go all of the time. And this is what we really try to draw attention to with, with the audio walks. And uh, that's kind of the baseline, kind of the heartbeat be below it. And um, trying to uh, bring people into the kind of bodily presence that really enables you to to notice something and um, to uh, consciously and in an embodied way orient yourself towards what you are actually being shown and what you are actually being told and uh, then we twist and retell uh, the, the stories, reconnect the things, um, re-choreograph the architecture, the things that make you move in certain ways. That's what we do. Hmm. I find that so interesting also, the way that the whole body is engaged. I know often when we think about an audio walk, we think about the ears for hearing, but actually mm. there are vibrations within speakers that also draw us to certain parts of the room or mm. there are certain lights that call us to a cosy corner. So I find that very interesting that actually when you begin to let yourself be worlded, you realise that whatever I am in contact with is actually in contact with me. Like can this reciprocity be an ongoing practice? And I think it needs to be actually as a way of reattuning to what is around us because mm -hmm. as you said we've grown in definitely like western civilizations with this idea of this central human figure so this 
idea of the Anthropocene, of changing things in relation to me, is very strong. So I love that idea of these subtle ways of approaching things from the periphery, perhaps a little person in your ear. I did have a a wonderful privilege of being able to hear some excerpts of this recording. Could you lead us in, Susanna? Yes, absolutely. Um, What you are listening to now is a a piece that's called Send Out a Pulse, and uh, we've created it while in residency uh, at the Australian Museum in, in Sydney. And the Australian Museum in, in Sydney is interesting in so many ways. I think it's the oldest, um, at the time also largest, Museum of Natural History uh, in the Southern Hemisphere. It's, uh, of course, deeply embedded within the history of colonial extraction and exploitation um, that um, addressed all kinds of bodies very asymmetrically. and. Um, in the piece, we are talking about the museum as a body, and uh, it's very much about um, people becoming aware of the architecture of the space, of its breathing, you know, along its air condition, its windpipes, its windows, of its heartbeat, of what's actually beneath our ground from... Uh, the parking lot that used to be there to the original lands that it actually um, stands on. And it's a a piece that also um, maybe makes us wonder what we lose in terms of movements, small movements, large movements. If we lose species, uh, more than human animal species so yeah please go ahead (laughs) the air you are breathing is filled with dust and specks of feathers and fur scales and skin it is filled with fungi spores ashes exhaust gases water particles from meteors that once burned up in the atmosphere. Below you, the surface of the ground. As you walk in this circle, You too are leaving traces of dust and movement. How many organisms have tread this space? How many more will come? This, um, snippet that you heard of um, which is part um, of Send Out a Pulse. The amazing sound design has been done by Trevor Brown um, and um, he's a field recordist, a sound artist and composer and the 
the sounds that he used are all based on sound that we evoked in the museum and they're based on glass the glass of the vitrines you know of the glass boxes um, that specimens are sort of tapping on the glass scratching on the glass so again here we have the figure of a world that's kept in a square and uh, is still extending outwards yeah reaching outwards a lot of us are currently in our homes due to the corona pandemic and some museums in different countries are closed. Could you talk a little bit about how we could perhaps experience a more than human museum in our homes? Is there a way that we can think of our home like a museum? I know right now I'm surrounded by some plants. I don't think I have any creatures in my house but of course there are probably some passed away ants under the floorboards or some spiders in the corners mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit to this idea of bringing the museum a little bit closer to us during this time mm. yeah yeah definitely i mean uh our apartments and museums have a bit in common anyways right it's places if we live in an apartment uh, but most of us still we carry around a certain amount of things that have practical use but also meaning so when I look around again and I have the apples and then I have the books then I can think of this place as a museum of unread and unread stories for example and I think this is actually quite a nice proposition to think about to a complete stranger who doesn't know what an apartment is and who only knows what a museum is the question what would this be, place be a museum about um, so as we discussed earlier, I'm thinking about museums through the practice of the guided tour. So I look around here and I see the books and I see shelves and I see apples and walls. And I have to say that this place is completely made of trees. Not completely, but very much so. The shelves are made of wood and the books are made of paper. And there are actually some lights, some lamps on the ceiling. And when I turn the lights on, depending on how your energy is being produced, but um, that's also because of fossilized trees and many other life forms, fossilized trees, fossilized fern, um, fossilized birds, <laughs> algae, algae, uh, you name it. Um, so I am already in a very much more than human space as soon as I turn the lights on. Um, and uh, so let's think about how can I offer a guided tour just to keep playing with the thought right now how can I offer a guided tour for animals that like to eat trees certain bugs for example you know then I can introduce them to different books and say this is from the 19th century and uh, this is actually mostly made of oak trees and uh, this might not be so relevant to you because it's been chemically treated uh, uh, but this might be more relevant because it's been made uh, with um, 
a certain kind of glue, uh, kind of made of, you know, animal bones, uh, which was the actual practice for quite a long time. So yeah, could totally uh, imagine a guided tour through the library for book and tree and paper eating um, bugs. I'm not sure that that's not what's actually already happening <laughs> in the background. <laughs> um, so it's very much actually a way of storing a place and telling different stories about it and bringing forth different material properties, different histories of the material and different and diverse tastes. Yeah. And, you know, what I think is really important in a museum is always the cafeteria. So after my guided tour, um, I think uh, what definitely needs to be there is a museum cafeteria for the kind of species that I've been offering the museum visit to. Yeah. And uh, if, again, we look around here in this room made of trees, made of a forest... <laughs> Um, any museum you visit and any apartment you visit is already a museum about the Anthropocene. You can just look around and, you know, smell and listen and then close your eyes and think about what kinds of sounds are there, what kinds of sounds wouldn't be here if we would not live in the age of the Anthropocene. Yes, it's a very provocative proposition, actually, and one I think that can also develop over time, this idea of, yeah, more than of my apartment, the more than of the space outside the apartment. Thank you so much, Susanna, for sharing this very detailed practice with us and taking the time to share ideas around what welding could be and most importantly how we can practice them, creating embodied knowledge around this attuning to becoming with that I'm really excited to continue exploring through this podcast series. As part of this series, we're actually passing on the microphone to mm -hmm. the next speaker, a little bit like a string figure, again, yes. inspired by Donna Haraway and her writings. Could you tell listeners who you'll be inviting to speak with us next? Yes. The next episode is going to be amazing uh, because uh, I've uh, asked uh, Benny Nima who is an artist, a diarist. He's working with flowers um, and many other uh, forms. And yeah, what I really like about his work is his practice of welding and how he activates sites differently by adding a little bit of steam, for example, and a little bit of sound, making modest proposals to begin with that then keep on welding until you're completely shifted, shifted elsewhere. And uh, he uh, works about queer kinship, queer histories, and um, I'm very much looking forward to learning more about queer and floral worldings from him in the next episode. 
Thank you so much. It was wonderful to speak with you and thanks for kicking off the new <laughs> podcast. I wish you a wonderful day. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Have a great day and take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Worlding Podcast. Gefördert durch die Beauftragte der Bundesregierung für Kultur und Medien im Programm Neustart Kultur. Hilfsprogramm des Tanzen des Dachverband Tanz Deutschland.